Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ginny Weber about her novel, Bed Trick. Earlier this year, I talked with Jessica Barksdale Inclan about her dual-time Shakespeare novel. Here we are back in Elizabethan theater, but from a very different perspective. The time period is about the same, but the narrator is one Alexander Cook, one of Shakespeare's company, then known as the Lord Chamberlain's Men. We'll find out more about him as the interview progresses, but the tale opens on a disturbing scene. Never till tonight, never till till now, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. Either there is a civil strife in heaven, or else the world, too saucy with the gods, incenses them to send destruction. Casca, Julius Caesar. Chapter 1, March, 1599. The crowd surged close around me, the drizzling rain adding to the stench of unwashed clothes and sweaty bodies. My brother and fellow players were nowhere to be seen in the melee, and my ears rang. Defeat the rebel Tyrone! Death to the Irish! Essex is our man! On to victory! Long live the Queen! Drowned out by death, death, death! Nothing I wanted more than to escape the ferociousness that underlay this show of patriotism but it was all I could do to hold my own. We'd come to see the Earl of Essex and his men on their nobly caparisoned horses parading toward their ships bound for Ireland. Instead, the mob pushed and shoved to get a closer view, shouting and cheering. I stumbled against them, pushing my way out, along with a father clutching the legs of the small boy on his shoulders. And now, please join me in welcoming Ginny Weber. Hi, Ginny. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Carolyn. Please start by telling us a bit about your background. Uh, You've uh, written plays and short stories, as well as this novel in a couple of different forms. How did you get into writing fiction? Well, I've always wanted to write. Ever since I was a child, I started writing things. And in junior high, I wrote something and various times. But I knew that I had a family to support, you know, contribute to the family, practical considerations. So I went into college teaching at, uh, and that was my career. But I was always writing something, at least poetry and journals, if nothing else. And when I had more time, when my children were grown, uh, you know, more independent, I was able to sit down to novels. And that's what I've most enjoyed. I like the undertaking something long. So the Shakespeare novels were my favorite, though I have written an unpublished one set in Bronze Age Greece. But both, basically, I'm interested in Shakespeare's era, having taught Shakespeare, having performed myself in plays, having written in three of his plays in you know amateur theater in Santa Barbara, where I live, and also having written plays, three of which spring off something in Shakespeare. What's the genesis of this particular story? Well, I was interested in 
how Shakespeare, well, for one thing, creates really strong female characters, but for another, there's a lot of gender play, whether it's uh, exchanging of roles, which he did quite early in Two Gentlemen of Verona, but later significantly with significantly with As You Like It. And that play interested me. My students loved it. It's one that I performed in as Corin the Shepherd, as a woman, who's of course a man. And uh, I also directed a faculty production of that play once for a sabbatical project, which everyone loved being in. But what's so intriguing is that Rosalind, the protagonist, spends most of the play disguised as Ganymede, a male. And she's a shepherd, supposedly, because she had to flee the court. So I thought, well, f- early on, before, way before I wrote Bed Trick, I thought, well, what if a girl was disguised as a boy, went to London, or, or landed somehow in London, is in London, and she was able to perform on stage because only boys could perform on stage, but she plays female roles, and then some of those female roles are disguise disguise. So I thought that layering of those of those various you know of girl playing a boy playing a girl playing a boy was just hugely entertaining and that and you know that readers would like that idea too and it would make all sorts of complications and obstacles. So yes, this is the third novel I've written about actually the same character, but each one is a separate story and Bedrick stands alone. Before we get into the plot, I'd like to ask you about the title. What is a bed trick, and why is it the right title for this novel? Well, I do get asked that a lot, and in fact, I mentioned to people about my for my book signing, I'm going to explain the title. But uh, two of Shakespeare's comedies rest on a plot called a bed trick plot, and basically, what that is is that the man a man um, rejects the woman that is he's promised to and lusts after another. He ends up sleeping with the woman he rejected, thinking she's the one he lusts after. So the bed trick is that he doesn't know who he's sleeping with and that that seals the marriage. And in my, it, but basically the overall definition of a bed trick is any lie about sex. So in fact, everyone who sleeps with everyone else uh, in my novel, knows who that person is. But the lie is to the world about my protagonist and her spouse or his spouse, depending which you think. Your hero is Alexander Cook, uh, known to his friends as Sander. And he has a rather unusual background for a Shakespearean actor, which you've hinted at just now. But what can you tell us about him? Sander Cook's actually a historical actor. When I first started this book, I had the actor named something else. I made up name and was a girl. So I left the same female name, which was Kate Collins. So, so Sander Cook was, ma- was born as Kate Collins in the village of Saffron Wald, and this is my invention, northeast of London, charming little village today. And she uh, is the, her mother, she's a motherless child. Her mother died giving birth to her brother two years younger. So she grows up, the father who drinks too much relies on her to run the house, but she's a total tomboy and a wild child really. And he decides he should tame her, get her tamed by marrying her to this dullard of a sheep farmer. So she has once before practiced wearing, tried out wearing her brother's clothes and she loves the freedom. So she escapes the village this is before this my story begins 
but it's the backstory is told in the in bed trick. She escapes the village and uh, runs off and was planning to go to sea. She heard about girls who go off and become pirates. And on the way, she runs into an acting troupe. And when they visited Saffron Walden, she befriended an actor in it. And she said, oh, I want to be an actor. That would be so fun. I've been an actor all my life. And he goes, no, girls can't do that. So there she is. There's the troupe. And she joins up with them. And eventually, through various complications, she gets to London. Not an easy thing to do. It's a traveling you know, practically vagabonds. But anyway, she gets to London and becomes an actor. So Alexander Cook is a historic actor who was not born female. But in my version, that's the truth. And very few people can know that secret because it's a quite terrible thing to to pass as a woman, as far as the law is concerned, and the church. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, and it's good about to get more terrible for Sander <laughs> if indeed you were found out. Um, it's uh, it was fascinating to me when I discovered this because it's really a matter of hierarchy. That is, men are considered superior to women. So for a woman to pretend to be a man or to dress as a man um, was a challenge to the male authority ladder. And so uh, Sander is, in effect, taking his life in his hands, just walking around London in men's clothes. Yes, that's a really good point. It's a, it is a matter of the power structure. Women were defined to be uh, chaste, obedient, dependent, silent. That's important. There was a pub called The Silent Woman, and the, the image of it is a woman with headless woman holding her head, <laughs> the pub sign. So, yeah, a woman was supposed to be silent. So Shakespeare certainly breaks that. And it was beginning to break down a little bit because... After the period of this, this month novel takes place between 1599 and 1603. So Sanders established in London by the time it opens. Queen Elizabeth dies at the end. And early in the next century, they started publishing, publishing booklets against men dressing like women or women dressing like men. And they didn't mean in disguise totally, but just with those elements. And it was considered witchcraft. You could be burned as a witch, you could be whipped, you could be pilloried, you know, that horrible thing where they stick your head and your <laughs> and your arms into a thing in front of the city square. But it was you would certainly get punished for it by the law and by the church. That was what was going on publicly. Privately, well, that's another matter perhaps. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, privately. And and I'm and in fact in your novel there are people who know who turn a blind eye and don't don't report Sander. Yes. Right. Right. Sander is known. And then there's also this notorious woman, which some of your listeners may have heard of, because every so often she comes to the surface. And her name was Mal Frith, and she was also known as Mal Cutpurse. She's a totally historic person, although her birth date isn't known. It's suspected. So I made it made her closer contemporary. So they're friends. She goes about blatantly in men's clothing. She smokes a pipe. Drawings were made of her. A play was written about her called The Roaring Girl. And at one point she tells Sander she has friends in high places. And how could she get away with it is a good question. But somehow it carries a day. And she also is on the wrong side of the law in other ways. That's been an outlaw in itself. But she's also on the wrong side of the law. She gets called into court a few times, mostly gets free of the punishment, once she was supposed to be whipped and she went drunk. I mean, she's just a character. So, of course, she had to be in my book. 
Of course she did. And she's a real addition. And we'll get back to some of her contributions in a moment. How does Sandra end up in what is initially a marriage of convenience with Frances Field? Right. That's the, that's the theme of the, of the book. It's the story. The previous two books have other stories that, that they're about. They're, you know, theater and politics run through all of them, and they're chronological, but they aren't a series per se. So what the story here is really about her marriage, and that's what the bed trick is, that she's, she marries a woman. And I'm going to use the gender she, uh, pronoun she. Now, I know if she were truly transgender, I would call her he. But she is a she through this play, so I'll go ahead and say she, because she's not truly transgender. The typical reason for a marriage of necessity would be pregnancy, and Frances is pregnant by Sanders' brother. Sanders' brother, two years younger, when the mother died, giving him birth, he has followed her to London, and in fact, there was a historic John Cook as well as the historic Alexander Cook, and John Cook, little known is about him, except that he wrote a play called The City Gallant, and it had another name too, but that's the main play, at least one in the mode of Ben Johnson, and it was in 1611. So anyway, he's uh, impregnated Francis, and Francis owns her own seamstress shop on London Bridge. She's a businesswoman. She's young, but she's a businesswoman, and she's pregnant, and Johnny does not do the proper thing. He just won't marry her. He has other ideas in his life, other plans, and he won't marry her. He says, well, you can marry her, everyone thinks, to his sister. You, everyone thinks you're a guy. You've got the same last name. I think it's a great idea. And, of course, she really balks, and Frances really balks, because she was raised in the old faith, in other words, Roman Catholicism. And she had to give it up because Queen Elizabeth has established the Anglican Church. But still, you know, she's a religious at heart, a religious woman. And this is a terrible idea. However, she would be, she would lose her business if she gave birth to a bastard. You could get away with it in the country. Someone else in your family would raise the child, but in London, nope, she can't get away with it. So Sander finally takes mercy on her. And I am giving away a little of the plot because it doesn't happen immediately, but I won't give any more of the plot that's significant. But the whole point is that she does marry her. So there is a marriage of two women, and it's a marriage of convenience. Neither is gay, neither ever thought of a female partner. Sandra, in fact, once loved a man, but of course she couldn't be with him. That would give up her, she would have to give up her career. The man happened to be John Donne, the poet, when he was really young, because he's so handsome if you look at his portrait. Wow, that's who she would fall in love with, and he with her, but he's too, you know, He's too young. He's still a law student. She's a girl that has to stay boy. So, you know, but she can marry Francis. And so she does. She does indeed. Um, we, now, if it's a problem for a woman to don men's clothes, it's a much bigger problem in Elizabethan England for, a woman, for two women to marry because that's really undercutting the domestic hierarchy. Um, and it's Mal Frith uh, who helps them do this? How does she do it? Because I think we can talk about the marriage since that's mentioned even on the back cover of the book. Yes, I think we can. Yes. Well, I was going to have it be a clandestine marriage. There was such a thing. In fact, a friend of mine, a British scholar, no longer living, but he wrote a whole book called Clandestine Marriages. You could go to the country. You could get a 
sketchily ordained priest. You could get a couple of, you could even marry without any priest and have a couple witnesses and go sign the registry book after. There are all kinds of things you could get away with in the country if there was no priest in your village, if you were pregnant, etc. But um, as far as being in London, no. So my British friend said, you know, she's got to be married by a real priest. So Maul was the only one who knows a priest is reputable enough to be maintain his being ordained, but also not be have too close an eye to the couple or the proprieties of it. Maybe, you know, just just you can get away with a little more. So she find they go to this priest in the depths of Bankside, south side of the Thames, where the brothels and the bear baiting, and in fact, some of the theaters, not all, but they, some of the theaters were. They were all in the suburbs, some north, some south. So Maul takes, uh, arranges this drunken priest, who's a perfectly nice guy, he's just drunk, uh, to marry them, and Francis agrees to it, and they get officially married and sign the registry. So that's the only way they can do it, is legally, but not quite within <laughs> propriety. What is Johnny's role in all this, besides the obvious that he has fathered Francis's child? Uh, why does he dodge his responsibilities? Yes, that's a big question. I actually thought about that for a long time, because how would that happen? And so he has aspirations for something else. He just does not want to be married. And even though he would become in control by the laws of the day in England of, of Francis' shop, he has no interest in that. And, you know, it was fun to be with her, but he does not want a life with her because he is playing court. Now, this is not in a necessarily sexual way to Lady Elizabeth Sidney. And she has a historically she's a real historic person and she had a coterie around her that included the playwright Ben Johnson and a younger playwright Francis Beaumont she's known for that she was married to the Earl of Rutland when she was very young and he was known to be impotent but <laughs> that's the side of the point Johnny's not necessarily filling in her husband's duty or anything like that but it was a thing for aristocratic women to, maybe her husband had syphilis, actually. People don't know for sure, but he definitely didn't, wasn't able to father children. In any case, um, she entertained herself as her aunt, Mary Sidney, who's also a character in the book, had done, with surrounding herself with poets, and she wrote poetry herself. And so he wants to be in her coterie. He wants to, he thinks her patronage and possibly living at her house as a courtier is a role that he could do, because aristocratic women did have men like that. It, they weren't necessarily sexual. Queen Elizabeth loved it that her, that her courtiers wrote her all kinds of flattering poetry. Anne Boleyn got in trouble, obviously. Uh, Henry VIII accused her from based on that. But it, still, it was a, tr a, a tradition since the troubadours. So Johnny fancies himself a troubadour to Lady Elizabeth Sidney, rightly or wrongly, and he just doesn't want to marry a seamstress, even if she owns her own shop. So that's why he won't marry her. Yeah, that is the other side of Elizabethan England, uh, which is worth mentioning. It's true that ordinary women, and that includes even women who own their own shops, uh, because they 
if they married, they didn't own their property. They didn't even own their children. It all went to the man. But there were these aristocratic women who were very well educated and who were patrons of the arts. And as you pointed out, especially with the Sydney women and Elizabeth I herself, they wrote poetry and they wrote, um, they were quite involved in the artistic scene. Absolutely. They, that was an amazing family, the Sydneys, just an amazing family. So uh, they, those women were properly educated. Now, of course, they couldn't, even in Virginia Woolf's day, they couldn't get a college degree or even go. Virginia Woolf had tutors. That's, the, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century. But um, they were tutored. There were, their families had big libraries. They had, you know, if they were aristocratic, they had a very educated people, men mostly, of course, coming to their house, and they were allowed to listen into the conversations. So uh, that definitely is was an important part of it. Normal women did not get an education, did not write. They were so many things they were pro- prohibited from. But in the Elizabethan age, possibly from having a queen in charge, women were breaking out of that, and uh, the first women writers. There were women who wrote random poetry, but the first ones actually wrote sort of religious tracts. They found that their husbands would be a pastor and they learned to to read and write. The literacy rate, I'll I'll add real quickly, is that the literacy rate in England was way higher than on the continent. A friend of mine wrote a book called Reading and Writing in Early Modern England. If I got the title wrong, the author's Nigel Wheel. But anyway, he was one of my advisors, in fact, but on historic details. But uh, literacy, as far as reading, was pretty widespread for women of all classes, surprisingly. Writing, a little less so. Some people claim Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, couldn't write because she put an X for her name. But whether that's true or not, um, Maggie Farrell would probably disagree. But anyway, um, so... There was a, a lot of change in the air about women's position, but the law wasn't changing. Right. That's a good point. Um, let's move to William Shakespeare, because he and his plays at the Globe Theater form a large part of the novel that doesn't, it, that is not directly connected to the marriage, um, because that is Sanders' life. That's how he he or she supports herself. Um, how would you describe your Will Shakespeare as seen through Sanders' eyes? Okay, well, you get lots of choices with Shakespeare. You can make him into whatever you want, but I tried to base his personality on the aspects of his biographies that I liked. And I also liked John Aubrey and his brief lives. He was writing in the 17th century, and he was writing short biographies of a lot of people, and he tried to talk, if they were dead, to people who knew them. And he got to Stratford not long after Susanna Hall, Shakespeare's daughter, died. And so he only could get hearsay. All of the family had died, all of his his siblings, his children. There was no one, no survivors by the time John Aubrey got to Stratford or started interviewing. So he got all these reports, secondhand reports, that Shakespeare was a modest person and quiet, and he would go to parties, but he'd leave early, and he'd just observe what was going on. And and he'd in, engage, he liked, he liked intellectual conversation and so on, but, you know, he was, he was quiet, and he would 
I remember reading this about James Baldwin. He loved parties, and then he would go home and write afterwards. So I kind of added that to my characterization of Shakespeare. That, you know, and, and also, he didn't make a very prepossessing appearance. He didn't, wasn't wearing plumes in his hat like John Donne or, and Mulfrith, and he wasn't wearing shoes with rosettes like Henry Risley. He was, you know... I dress him in brown. When he gets more money, he wears nicer quality brown, but he mostly dresses in brown and just doesn't stand out. And it is known by what little information we have, as you know, it's very scanty about real information. Biographies tend to say he may have, he might have, you know, but anyway. Um, but he is known to have played fairly small roles in his plays, like the faithful old retainer Adam and As You Like It, Hamlet's ghost father is typically accepted. Often uh, maybe a king who doesn't show up much or a Jesus in Midsummer Night's Dream who shows up at the beginning and end. Small roles. And he played in Ben Jonson's place too because we have some uh, cast of characters that were kept at the, in the day by Philip Henslow. So yeah, he was an actor, at least for a while. But I make him a modest person and he and Sander are friends. And he's uh, he's actually encouraging about her relationship. You know, he he runs into them after their marriage, and so he goes along to the wedding breakfast. So he's in on the wedding, the marriage between Sander and Francis. But there's one little wrinkle, and that is that he does base his plays. The actors in his plays are based on the company to large extent, and to something they can do, not their personalities, but something within their skill level. And his stories use all kinds of things obliquely. And these bed trick plays are way too close, for, in Sanders' opinion, to her marriage with Francis. It kind of turns out that way because he, he when they're seen together, they, you know, well, it's just a little bit of a problem. To, for her to see some a callow person like Bertram in All's Well That Ends Well who behaves so much like Johnny. And she just doesn't like the, any similarity at all to her situation. So she has a little bit of anxiety. But the other thing is that I want another point that I do want to make about Shakespeare and being influenced by his characters. If you have a really good actor who can play really good female parts, you can write really good female parts. And so Edmund Malone was an 18th century critic, and he uh, speculated that this character, this actor called Alexander Cook, originated Shakespeare's principal female roles. So that's the part I really want to emphasize in the story, is the way, not that they work together, there's no way that, that I'm saying Sander Cook wrote anything, but their conversations and their relationship does contribute or the, the ability that she has, let's say, on stage to play. Um, Macbeth doesn't happen in this, hasn't yet happened. Um, and Cleopatra, those come up in the 17th century. Sander can do it. That's the point. Anything he wants to write, she can play way beyond what you'd expect of a boy. And I'll also make one other point. We assume that the that these female roles were played by boys. That's what's always said. But I did find documentation that it went that young men up to 
say, 21, if a young man is slender and keeps the bloom of youth, he can continue playing female roles. I just cannot picture a 14-year-old boy, let alone younger, playing Lady Macbeth or Cleopatra. So... Even uh, a 21-year-old, it's hard to imagine, of you know, either gender, frankly. Exactly. So that gave me, of course, there's also novelistic license, which I use a few times. I have a, a, another way I use novelistic license, which may or may not spoil the plot, so I'm not sure if I'll mention it. Several other ways, actually. But one would be that Sandra can continue playing female roles. Her brother quits way before she does. You know, he's not going to do that anymore. He's got a beard and broad shoulders, but... She she smudges her cheeks, and, and so does Moll Frith also, and any boy actor would do that. And she kind of gets away with it. I also figured out a way she could do costume changes because they wore layers, you know, so she'd have a shift on underneath. So it didn't – those things were no longer a problem. She's more or less mastered how to behave as a male, even though she isn't. And there's also the slight pragmatic thing if one of her fellow actors suspects, well, they're all working together. So at this point, she, you know, she might be able to get away with with it even if they figured out she was female. But most of the major actors do never, with com- this company, never do figure it out. They just take her at face value. There's a lot going on in England itself at this time because we're approaching the end of Queen Elizabeth's life and she hasn't named a successor and that creates all kinds of tensions within the society, which I think we won't go into because most of them are played out later in the book. But at its heart, this is a story about two people who are trying to make a life together and it's not always easy for them just as it's not easy for any married couple. Um, What are some of the personal challenges that they face? Right. They're definitely affected by what goes on in the outside world. But they're they're affected by really what is the nature of their relationship? What can they even be together? I thought that was a very interesting question that two women who never imagined having a female partner, who probably both to one extent or another, assumed not ever to marry. Certainly Sander would never marry. And I don't think that that uh, Frances has really worked it out, but she does have a good independent life and income, so she wouldn't have to. And she's she's leery of, you know, like I said, a man could take over her business or tell her what to do or, or close it down or anything. So here they are trying to work out a relationship, and, you know, there's a child involved, uh, complications around that, which I won't go into, but... I thought that was really the through line of the story, and that's what inspired me to write this particular story and to call it Bed Trick. So it's, it is backed up by what's going on politically and theatrically, and that gives a lot more you know, interest and texture. But the real story is them, and they go through a lot of different stages of that relationship, and I thought that's what will keep the reader's interest. Like, how is this going to work out? Because you know, how would it work out is a really, it's a good question. And so that, that's really the focus. And where will it, where will it all end? In can, can there be a happy ending? Is that such a thing that can even happen? And so much goes on that could mitigate against that. What would you like people to take away from Bed Trick? 
Ah, well, you know, it's very uh, applicable to the sexual mores and gender roles of the moment. Uh, there was no such, the use, the word gender existed, but it wasn't used about uh, gender fluidity would not have been a, a word or concept they had. They would just say you were the sex, you were male sex or the female sex. But we call it gender fluidity. And that's going on right now in a very interesting way. That A lot of changes are going on in the world. Uh, and that's why we're having trouble with the pronoun here because they're fooling on trans people. But So I just thought it would be interesting to see that what were the sexual mores in those days and how do they relate to today? So that was one part that just plays around with same-sex marriage and and women trying to take on a male role male men to some some degree were they were dressing in effeminate ways certainly at least certain uh, uh, classes of men and then there's also the issue of the uncertainty which you referred to and I think it's helpful to realize that times we look back on and think we're great, like the Elizabethan era was such a blooming of theater and um, the new world exploration. And it was just this exciting, blooming time. And yet people living in that time felt terrible anxiety and insecurity. And towards the end of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's life was still no successor named and bunches of numerous, you know, royal-blooded people that could, and even mounting rebellions against her, people living at the time were starting to pack up and thinking they better leave London, and there's plague on the horizon. It was terrible. And yet, we look back at it warmly because of the long-term view. So I just thought that would be also uh, relate to people today who, you know, we can get so caught up in the in the horrible things you read in the news and maybe want to not read the news at all. And yet in the long run, maybe things will be looked back on in, in a different light and, you know, our own lives. And in any case, it does give us a more complicated view of, of the history of Queen Elizabeth's era, that it wasn't necessarily seen as wonderful by everyone at the, especially towards the end of it, even earlier. I mean, all through her reign. So there's never a time that's so illustrious that we really want to go back to it or that is really so much preferable to our own. Something like that. I don't mean to be moralistic. I'm not being. I just, I'm just saying it, it gives a different perspective. It does indeed. And this book has just come out. Uh, are you already working on something new? I am. Um, it relates to the Sydney family, <laughs> not Lady Elizabeth so much. She's a character. Unfortunately, none of her por uh, poems survived, and I wrote one in her voice, and I can't find it. But anyway, I do have a, something uh, that I'm carrying on into the next century, and Sander will still be a, a, a character in Shakespeare's plays because we haven't gotten to some of his important plays yet that I would really want to touch on, but... Uh, I do have another story, yes, and it's got a little. It's got some romance. It's got some intrigue and scandal and poetry and a bit of theater and King James rule, which was very different from Elizabeth. It's not a you know monarchical history, but that's the background. So yeah, I've got a project that's I've written loads of scenes, but I've got to structure them into something a little more uh, 
hole and then fill in the, the other kind of hole. So, yeah, I do have a new project coming. Thank you. I look forward to seeing it because I really enjoyed Bed Trick. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Jenny. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Hope I didn't talk too fast. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Ginny Weber about Bed Trick. Find out more about her at www.ginnyweber.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.